Attention, this is not legal advice. If you are experiencing a legal emergency, contact an attorney or your local public defender's office. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Gin and Justice. Hey, I'm Justine. And I'm Amanda. Welcome to another legal brief with Gin and Justice. And as you guys know, it's the last Tuesday of the month, which means we are bringing you the July exonerations. But we have, I don't know if it's good news or bad news when it's a short list. I think it's bad because we know Um, there's more. However, I'm hoping that maybe some will get added at the end of the month that we didn't know about. There we go. And we'll just add them to August. Yeah. You'll hear about them next month. Before we get into the exonerations, speaking of court processes and appeals and all of that stuff, I was just reading an article and it's called Georgia Supreme Court overturned a prominent attorney's murder conviction. Prosecutors now want to retry him. It's a CNN article by Jamil Lynch and Christina Maxaris. Hopefully that's pronounced right. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, it just talks about this. He was an attorney and he was charged with killing his wife. Essentially, he was sleeping in the backseat of the vehicle. Uh, Firearm. She was in the driver's seat. Firearm. Hang on. He was sleeping in the backseat of the vehicle? Yeah. I don't. It doesn't give too much information. I don't know if they were like. I don't know if they were like traveling or something because then that's not really weird. Okay. Yeah, but so I don't really have any information. (laughs) on. So basically it says that the shooting was an accident. Well, what he alleges is that the shooting was an accident and that the gun, which was on his lap while he was sleeping in the backseat, fired after he was abruptly awoken. And so that was his side of things. Essentially, he was found guilty and the Georgia Supreme Court just overturned his felony murder conviction stating that the jury should have been instructed that they could consider a lesser charge of involuntary manslaughter. So always ask for those special instructions because that might be what the jury needs to get uh, all of the puzzle pieces they need. So anyway, this was about how it was overturned. And uh, the prosecutor's office said uh, they believe it was erroneously overturned. They plan to retry him for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and felony murder. So be interested to see how they place all that together. I'm curious what the felony murder part was because is the felony considered the aggravated assault with a firearm? Mm-hmm. Because then it's not felony murder. So. Possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony is another charge. So I'm not really sure what they're exactly charging the felony murder for and what the what the underlying felony is, what the underlying felony element is. But anyway, so I thought it was interesting. Apparently he was a prominent attorney before, and then this just happens. So there's that. So I will uh, link that in the show notes if you guys want to read some more and follow on that case. Cool, cool. So let's jump right into our exoneration for this month. It's Jose Cruz, and I got this information from the National Exoneration Registry. We'll plug it in the show notes. And this particular article was written by Morris 
possibly on October 6, 1993, at about 3.30 a.m., 40-year-old Vernon Metters was waiting for a bus in Chicago, Illinois, when a car pulled up and stopped their engine. The driver, 16-year-old Antoine Douglas, asked where he could get a jump start. Metters later said that he suggested Douglas leave the car at the 24-hour gas station adjacent to the bus stop. According to Metters, another car pulled up to the gas station. The front seat passenger asked Douglas if he was a member of the Disciples Street Gang. When Douglas said that he was a vice lord, a rival gang, passengers got out of the car and began Man, firing back shots. With these with these gang names again. I know. So dumb. <laughs> at least... <laughs> At least 20 shots were fired. Douglas was killed. Metters dove to the ground when the shooting started. And when it ended, he heard a voice say, witnesses, and he was then shot. He played dead on the sidewalk and the car eventually left. Police interviewed him. He said that there was three assailants and the front seat passenger was a Hispanic male. When he got home from the hospital that evening, Metters was visited by detectives Ronaldo Guevara and Ernest Haverson. Those names sound familiar. Pretty sure we've discussed them a few times. (laughs) Sounds like foreshadowing. (laughs) Just saying. Those names names are familiar. You have heard them before. Yes. And also a Sergeant Edward Minji. They showed Meadows a photographic lineup containing about 21 photographs of Hispanic gang members, including our guy, 24-year-old Jose Cruz. But he did not identify anybody. Mm -hmm. The following morning. Here we go. (laughs) The Chicago Tribune newspaper published a short article about the shooting and mentioned Metters by name and identified the block of the street where he lived. He became angry and afraid because he lived within walking distance of the shooting. On October 8th, so the following day, Detective Anthony Mojkik, Mojkik, that's probably not right. Visited Metters. At this time, Metters said that he could identify the shooter, but he wanted assurances that his family would be protected before he would make an identification. The police agreed to relocate the family and put them in the witness protection program. Metters was then shown a photo array of Latin kings, and Metters identified Argy Cruz as the gunman. Based on the identification, police arrested Argy Cruz on October 9th, 1993, and he was charged with first-degree murder and attempted murder. He denied any involvement. Until the cops beat him up. (laughs) (laughs) So after Cruz was arrested, he was placed in a live lineup, and Metters identified him for a third time. Or second time. That's unclear. In January of 1996, Cruz went to trial in the Cook County Circuit Court. There was no physical or forensic evidence linking him to the crime. But on January 30th, 1996, the jury convicted him of first-degree murder and attempted murder. And he was sentenced to 90 years in prison to be served consecutive to a 15-year term in an unrelated case. The Illinois Appellate Court for the First District upheld the convictions and the sentence in October of 1998. I'm so sorry about all of the names in this article because I suck. Every so, time. Every single time. <laughs> in 2018, Gregory Swigert, an attorney at the Center for Wrongful Conviction at the Bloom Clinic Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, filed a post conviction petition. Yeah, that was really hard for me. <laughs> they filed a post conviction petition seeking to vacate his conviction. The petition said that detectives in the case, including Guevara, had identified two witnesses shortly after the crime, both of whom said the gunman was a black man. Well, that's very different. That's different. That is different. One of the witnesses, Pedro Jeremillo, 
was working as an attendant at the gas station where the shooting occurred. When he was first interviewed, he said the shooter was a black man. Days later, Jeremillo, a Spanish speaker who did not speak, understand, or read English, signed a statement that was written in English by the police. Uh. The statement said, <laughs> yeah, the statement said Jeremillo said that the shooter was either olive-complected Hispanic or light-skinned black. However, when interviewed as part of the Center on Wrongful Convictions reinvestigation, Jeremillo said he never said that statement. Quote, no, it's not possible. Those were words put on me by the police. He said the police wanted him to change his ID, but he insisted that the shooter was a black man. Wow. Jeremillo said that he was pressured by Guevara to sign a statement and that Guevara wanted to force Jeremillo to testify that the shooter was Hispanic. He said that Guevara wanted him to pick out the wrong person, wanted him to pick Cruz as the gunman. In the end, Jeremillo's supervisor found an attorney to represent him to keep Guevara away from him. That's crazy. You shouldn't have to do that to keep the police away from you. And then there was Evan Rios. He was a witness at the shooting. At the time, he had told the police that the car had black males. Rio told the center of Bronco conviction that he gave his contact information to the police and was never contacted again. Sounds about right. Yeah. The petition said that Cruz's trial defense attorney never contacted Jeremillo or Rios to interview them as potential defense witnesses. Now, this is where it gets real interesting. The petition cited a mounting number of cases where defendants had been granted new trials based on evidence that Guevara and Haverson had forced defendants to falsely confess or forced witnesses to falsely testify. In 2004, Juan Johnson, whose 30-year prison sentence for a murder conviction had been vacated in 2002, was acquitted at a retrial. The federal jury later awarded Johnson $21 million in damages from the city based on evidence that the original three eyewitnesses recanted their testimony and revealed that they were coerced by Guevara to testify against Johnson. Seven years later, Jacques Rivera was exonerated of a murder. He later filed a federal civil rights lawsuit accusing Guevara and other officers of burying evidence and pressuring the witnesses to falsely identify him as the trigger man. In 2018, the jury awarded Rivera $17.175 million. In 2016, the murder convictions of Jose Montanez and Armando Sereno were vacated and the charges were dismissed. Both had been convicted on false testimony that had been coerced by Guevara. I'm sensing a theme here. In April 2017, Roberto Almodovar and William Negron were exonerated. I know an Almodovar. <laughs> That's the only reason I know how to pronounce. <laughs> they were exonerated after evidence showed that Guevara had improperly influenced witnesses to identify them as shooter and driver in a drive-by shooting that killed two people and injured a third. November 2017, Jose Masonette became the seventh I'm definitely person to- sensing a theme here. I'm definitely yeah. sensing a theme. These guys became the like, seventh uh, Hispanic person names at all mm-hmm. to be exonerated based on misconduct by Guevara Masonette, who was serving a sentence of life in prison without parole, falsely confessed after a 17 hour interrogation punctuated by beatings and torture by Guevara. December 17th, Gabriel Celeste and Arturo Delion Reyes, who claimed that Guevara had beaten them into confessing to a murder they did not commit. And their murder convictions were vacated and charges were dismissed. July 12, 2022, the Cook County State Attorney's Office Conviction Integrity Unit announced that they would no longer contest Cruz's petition. Cook County Circuit Court Judge Tyra Walton vacated his conviction and the charges were dismissed. Cruz was released that day after spending more than 26 years in prison. 
Cruz was the 18th person to be exonerated based on evidence of misconduct by Guevara and his partners. Well, there's a sign. And I got to tell you, I briefly tried to find out what's going on with these cops and found many articles about terrible things that they have done, but no consequences to their actions. So, yeah. Yep. (sighs) Wild. Insane. Yeah. I feel like when there's an issue like that, it should be like mandatory review of Mm -hmm. any cases that involve those particular officers. And when it's been proven, they should be charged with crimes. Oh, yeah, that too. I just mean for all the people who have been accountability as a result of it's very yeah. important. Anyways. Oh, yes. I do want to talk. Yes. And the importance um, of. For our Florida <laughs> listeners, <laughs> I was watching the governor Democrat primary debate. I want to start by saying criminal justice reform is a bipartisan issue, it affects right, everybody. Like we've. But it just so happened that this was the Democratic primary for governor. I would say our listeners are are our guests that we found on are split pretty 50-50. Right. So just so happens that's what was on and I was watching it. And the question was about the death penalty. And I was so disappointed by both of their responses because they both agreed to the death penalty on a specific case. However, Florida has the most exonerations from death row than any other state. Mm -hmm. We get it wrong more than any other state. Mm -hmm. One person that's innocent being killed should outweigh any amount of guilt Mm -hmm. being killed, first of all. Second of all, it's not financially smart. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I actually pulled the costs after we were talking about this the other day. I pulled the cost and Florida spends approximately $24 million per execution. $24 million per execution. That's your money, Florida. So I think it's really important if you feel as strongly about abolishing the death penalty as I do. Maybe reach out to your officials, especially the ones that are fighting for your vote here in Florida. Let them know how you feel about that. Yeah. Because they work for you. They're supposed to represent you, and that's how they're going to get their job. Also, it's just even if somebody is guilty of a heinous crime – so it's not the government's wanna, place. Yeah. Do you want to give the government? I mean, so many people are like being awoken to the like not giving government too much power thing right mm-hmm. now. <laughs> but I feel like I've been awake too since high school. I'm just saying, <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you want to give the government power to kill somebody? Like, do you want our government to have that much power that they get to decide who lives and dies? That's crazy. That's crazy. It is crazy. Anyways. Especially in Florida. It's just infuriating to me because we are the worst when it comes to killing innocent people. Every death row exoneree that we've spoken to on this show. Was from Florida's death row. Was from Florida. So there's that. (laughs) (sighs) And it's really just used against the most vulnerable people. So remember, we go back to that full circle to that prosecutorial discretion. And they get to choose who gets charged with a death penalty and who doesn't. So not saying every prosecutor is bad or consciously choosing certain populations, but subconsciously for sure, at least. Yes. And that's not an opinion. Those are just facts. You can look it up. I'm going to tag the resources in the show notes for you. Thank you, Death Penalty Info Center, (laughs) (laughs) which is also where I got that cost analysis. So there you go. 
before we go yes like us on social media follow oh, us yeah. leave us please reviews do. please and don't forget to tune in next week we talk to a former prosecutor she is super cool she used to work in new york city sex crimes it was so nice to finally get that other perspective and it's actually amazing how much we have in common with what we do with our jobs so don't forget to tune in next week don't forget to leave us a review keep us in the apple charts spotify real easy leave a couple stars probably five that would be nice leave us five if you're gonna go leave and do five. it just <laughs> <laughs> all right guys we'll see you next time on gin and justice bye all editing for Gin and Justice done by Gin and Justice Podcast. Artwork by Justin Cardone. Photography by Kimber Schwakey. We'll see you next time on Gin and Justice.